there's an awful lot of discussion about potential cellmates in Ukraine at the moment, which, which I just, I, I don't buy at all. This is Conversations about Eastern Europe. Today I speak with Karina from Ukraine. Before the war she lived in Kiev, but she and her parents are from the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine that is temporarily occupied by Russia. Her parents are still there, and not just that. In the beginning of March 2022, her dad was taken away to a prisoner camp by occupying forces, not to be heard of again until several months later. We talk about that, her life today, studying in Scotland, and much more enjoyed. Welcome to a conversation with Karina from Ukraine. She is from the eastern part of Ukraine, and today I'm very grateful that she will share her story as she um, has experienced yeah, her life you can say ever since the full-scale invasion as of February last year. So can you uh, just, before you start telling uh, like with details and so on, talk, tell a bit about yourself, Karina, um, like what your background is and what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm just 20 years old and uh, I'm still a student. Uh, and I'm studying international business. Yeah, as you've already mentioned, that I come from the eastern part of Ukraine. And for us, actually, the war started a little bit earlier than uh, 2022. Uh, so we experienced some trouble starting from uh, 2014. Uh, yeah, um, last year I moved to Scotland. Uh, and uh, I, I'm so grateful that the, that country accepted me. Um, what else can I... I'm also an English tutor, and I'm tutoring adults, and I love this job. Um, but um, I'm planning to proceed with my career uh, in the field of education, but uh, more like Ministry of Education, because, you know, I, I saw the difference between educational systems in the UK, and now after uh, the war is over, I would like to change a lot of things in my own country to make it better. So I, I hope to bring some changes to my country. Mm, so I guess you can say that your experience being in Scotland Your experience with the system over there has also conveyed some thoughts into you about what you want to change when you get back to Ukraine, when the war is over. So I think that's an interesting um, thought process, which we can maybe also return a bit to later. And also, maybe it's uh, relevant to mention that that was also how I got in contact with you, because I spoke with Maria, who is the founder and leader of the English school, where you are also working as a tutor. And yeah, she, after I talked with her, I asked if she knew anyone that would be um, yeah, relevant to talk to and had an interesting and, how can you say it, yeah, um, rough, I, I guess, um, experience with the war. And um, yeah, then she um, yeah put us up uh, together. She shared my contacts with you. So 
that's also just to share with the listeners how some of these deals get into place because it is by yeah i guess um the methods that maybe some media does not use for um doing stuff like this so i'm also just um, very glad that this was possible to do and i'm very grateful that you want to participate and yeah i can share the same message with you as i did with maria so that after the conversation if you know anyone um who you think would be interesting for me to talk to and to do a conversation with you also uh, should feel more than free to um yeah send their contact info my way now i think we should um get to it so before the conversation we talked a bit via voicemail and over telegram and you wrote to me that yeah obviously you're from the eastern parts of ukraine and where you're from is right now a temporarily occupied area of ukraine so that is one of the areas within ukraine that is under russian control at the moment and i think that as someone who follows this war a lot as someone who follows ukraine a lot and as someone who has a lot of empathy and sympathy towards ukraine and their population it to me it seems like we sometimes in the west shy away from talking about what is happening in these areas which is actually um, I, i guess you can say the the worst things of this war is what is happening to civilian civilian ukrainians in these areas so i think it's um yeah it's good to, to get a chance to talk about that also based upon your personal story so yeah without further ado i just think i will give the word to you now and to tell your story so yeah that's um yeah the word is yours now my hometown was occupied uh, right at the beginning of the war i mean um i think it was like the first of march or something um and my parents and all my family uh were staying at that time there um it was very scary because uh, i mean you don't know what to expect and uh, you don't know what can happen uh, and uh, actually i can say that the worst happened to my family because uh, one day uh, it was also it, it was literally like the 10th of march uh, i think um russian troops russian soldiers maybe they were not even russians because uh, you know you don't know whether they're russians or from that uh, uh lugansk people's republic because uh, those are like uh, two different types of people i would say but anyway they just walked in into our house and uh um they started searching it and uh, they took away my dad and they never told where they would put him uh they just took him away uh and um he spent six months there like in their prisons and they tortured him and uh, they wanted to know some information from him uh and why they did it so if they thought that uh, a person 
had uh, a, any connection with like Ukrainian army or if uh, someone in their family was in the army uh, they would like take a person um, and they would question him um, or like even beat them so th they did all the nasty things you could uh, only imagine uh, and uh, again, like my mom was there, right? I was here uh, in Kiev and then I moved to the western part because it wasn't safe to stay in Kiev anymore. Um, my mom was going to all uh, the different institutions, I don't know, like to the police station, um, or, or to all places uh, that you can only imagine. And she was like, okay, uh, just tell me where my husband is, tell me whether, like, he needs anything or not. Because, you know, like, um, they took him away in uh, March, right? And he came back in July. Um, they didn't even allow, like, to give them, uh, to give him any clothes. Uh, they didn't even tell us where he was. Like, <laughs> it was so difficult to figure out where he was staying and... Uh, at least, you know, um, any news, like, at all. Um, yeah, but anyway, then he came back, and I think it was one of the happiest days in my life when he called me. Yeah, they also, they didn't allow to call him, um, like, nothing, you know? Like, it, it was just, like, degrading treatment, I think. But so, in those months where he was in Russian captivity, you were not told anything and it was impossible to get in contact with him. Uh, how did that uh, feel? Well, horrible. Uh, th that was uh, the worst time in my life. And uh, also what was difficult that uh, I was alone, my mom was alone and we were quite far away, you know, and it was so difficult uh, to support her. And it was super difficult uh, even to talk to her because um, there is no service there and there is no internet connection there even now. And in order to call her, like I have to download a special program uh, and it's somehow it allows you to call them, you know. But for example, uh, they can only call uh, within the, that Lugansk People's Republic or to Russia and that's it. They can't call um, to Ukraine or I can't call them. Uh, so, and no internet, <laughs> you know, like uh, the, as if they are just like hundred years back in time. And yeah, uh, so your dad was taken away in the beginning of the war and there was a room um, for about five months, I guess, where you didn't know anything, didn't heard from him. And in that period, did you then go to Scotland or when was that? Uh, yeah, I decided to move to Scotland in May. Uh, it was a very quick decision, you know. My, my friend just texted me, uh, let's go to Scotland. And I was like, okay, let's go. And it was literally like uh, just... Why do you think it was uh, such a fast decision for you? To do that maybe because i didn't have anything to lose you know like uh, and uh, i couldn't come back to kiev because it wasn't safe 
uh, I couldn't come back uh, to my hometown because it was occupied. So I decided that, uh, like, while I'm still, like, at, at that time I was 19, right? Um, why not try it? And so, uh, why not try? So, so I decided to try uh, and to go there. And um, I don't think that I regret it. It's just like, it's an amazing country. And uh, um, it was safe, first of all. Uh, at that time, it was very, very important. But can you talk a bit about, um, because that's a, that is just such an, um, how can you say it? It's it's very far. Your situation is very far away from what anyone from Denmark or any other country within the Western Western sphere of influence would ever have to go through. So, in May, when you were in Kiev, you hadn't been speaking to your dad for yeah two months or more, and also. It was uh, very difficult to get in contact with your mother at the same time. So, did you talk with your mother before going to Scotland? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I called her and we talked. Uh, um, but I can't say that uh, I was like, should I go or not? I just told her that I decided to go, and of course she supported every my decision. And she was like, um, I'm proud of you. If you want go for it uh, yeah uh, but uh, of, of course uh, when I was doing that uh, my main purpose was safety but then I was also thinking about like education you know because um, in Ukraine uh, when I started studying in the university uh, it was COVID and basically we didn't go to university at all and uh, then the war started again we didn't go to university at all and I thought that uh, it's not the education I would like to receive so probably uh, if I think about my future uh, I should try to study offline you know to go um, to in-person um, uh, classes uh, and uh, that was my second um, idea in my head and um, Yeah, uh, I talked to my mom and she was like, yeah, uh, go for it. Mm. And uh, I think most people will understand your decision to to go. That seems pretty, um, well, it seems like a, a rational decision in such a situation. But so when this happens to your dad and your mom stays in Kiev, How do you then receive, this is a practical question actually, um, like what is the process of actually getting information about what happened to your dad? So I guess he might, you said he came home in July, is that correct? Mm, yeah. Yeah, in July. Uh, so then, yeah, he got home to your mom, of course. And then um, you heard about it. So, so how was that whole process of, yeah, first having to get in contact with your mom, and then having to hear from her that your dad now had gotten home? Did you also talk with your dad at that point, or how was, um, yeah, how was that information brought to your knowledge? Does uh, yeah, I hope the question makes sense. So, but it's also. 
question in which I would like to hear about yeah, the feelings going through that whole process of getting that information, but still being in a situation in which it is not possible as it is for me to talk with my mom um, regarding um, yeah, your possibility to talk with your parents in such a situation in which one would otherwise think that that is one of the situations in which you would uh, like to talk with your parents the most. Uh, so can you just um, yeah explain all that, the practical stuff, and then also talk uh, about some of the yeah feelings going through all that as well, because that must have been so difficult as well. Uh, yeah, so um, again, like it, I could call them because uh, you just have to download that app and uh, like, yeah, they don't have internet, but it's possible to call. Uh, the process is more difficult, but uh, it's possible to do if you want. Like you can use um, Skype or some other apps. They also, I think, work without internet. So you can do that. But uh, the most difficult thing for us was that all the phones were bugged. And you could even hear that, you know, like uh, when you're talking to a person and there is like another person listening to you and you can really hear it that somebody is listening to you. And uh, that was the most difficult part because uh, like you couldn't really discuss anything, you know, like uh, you couldn't really... Um, ask uh... what so okay so sorry but this is just um, I didn't uh, know that this was uh, the case so what happened is actually that when your dad gets home and your family calls you or you call your family via that service um, then you knew that there basically was a Russian spy also listening or like you said a bug um, so so that is just so crazy um, and says a lot about Russia as well, that they don't want you to get to talk with your family on a private basis because for them it's too important to maybe um, subtract something from a conversation that they could then use or something like that. So yes, so so is it even uh, possible then to talk with your mom and dad on like a regular level or how is that uh it was difficult at the beginning you know when you like i remember i was okay with it more or less but my parents were super like pissed off you know because you can't really discuss anything and uh, i remember when my dad just came back uh like he had like a ton uh, a ton of different phones because he wanted to have at least one that wouldn't be bugged, you know. Um, and uh, I remember, yeah, 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 it made it made him super irritated, and uh, it was difficult to get used to it. But uh, it is what it is, and we still had to talk because there was no other way to do that anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it it was a problem, and. Um, yeah, so uh, your question was also, like, how I figured out that he was free. Um, I think, like, four or five days before uh, he was um, free, he called me. And uh, he, so he at that time he was in prison and they gave him the phone. Uh, and he called me and he told me that, uh, like, in four or five days uh, I would be home. 
um, and that was it. Um, yeah, at that time I had mixed emotions because of course I was happy that I heard my dad's voice, but at the same time, I remember he was crying when he called me and it was the first time when I heard my dad crying because he's, you know, like um, very, he, he's like a real man <laughs> that never cries, you know. Uh, yeah, but but he was crying and he couldn't uh, talk. And he also, like, he didn't know where I was staying. Like, when I told him uh, that I was in Scotland, he was just shocked. Can you, yeah, maybe explain a bit further um, what his reaction to that was? Uh, was it like your mom's reaction of saying, that's good, you should um, yeah, go for it in Scotland? Um, and was there any emotion or anything? Like, did he did he say anything about his own experience? Um, maybe not ex- directly related to knowing that you were in Scotland, um, but but it, it could have been that maybe that, um, yeah, how can you say it? That that um, created a feeling in him uh, having to share something with you. Um, so so how was all that? Uh, yeah, uh, I remember he was super proud of me, you know, like, because uh, he told me uh, that he was super happy that I didn't just um, stop doing everything, that I didn't just, like, moan, you know, that I tried to do something. And, yeah, he was super proud and he wanted me uh, to enter, like, a British university and uh, he supported uh, every my decision. Uh, and um, at the first time, I remember, like, we talked a lot, because, uh, um, you know, like, normally, I, I didn't really talk uh, a lot to my parents via phone, especially, but when he uh, was released from prison, uh, I remember our conversations were just, like, um, three, four hours, we couldn't stop sharing, like, everything that happened in our lives, and he he told me a lot about uh, his experience there, uh, and he was joking a lot, you know, um, he, he wasn't, like, um, he didn't want anyone uh, to feel, like, sorry for him. Uh, and uh, he was joking, he was smiling, and uh, I think the next day he, he was already at his job, like, he was checking everything that happened while he was away, you know, uh, so uh, he had, like, a very positive spirit, I would say. So what, uh, so he got home, and um, the two of you started talking more, you're saying, but... Yeah. And, I guess that is an um, yes. So a lot of the Ukrainians that I have been speaking to um, share the common, how can you say it, uh, feeling of having something fundamentally changed within their life. Maybe not. It it doesn't have it. How can you say it? Like it doesn't have to be the same thing. But yeah, talking to you. Um, it sounds like your relationship with your parents have changed at least a little. No, okay, this I mean it like this. Um, so it doesn't have to be that before the war you didn't have a good relationship with your parents or anything. 
or and it doesn't have to be that um, Maria before the war wouldn't have been able to be a very good teacher and create an um, English school or that uh, Veronica whom I've been speaking to a lot as well um, she said she has made some realizations because of the war and it's not that I don't think that she would have been able to also make make such realizations without the war but in all three uh, cases the message I'm getting is that as you're saying it changed your relationship with your parents for Maria the war also enacted in her some thoughts which have helped her actually go through with the project of creating this school and uh, regarding uh, Veronica it is pretty obvious when I uh, write with her that she has uh, changed a lot as a person and that her perspective on the world and uh, on what happiness is has also changed a lot so I think that is actually an pretty encourage, encouraging thought and point that for the three of you at least um, amidst all of the tragedies um, you're still finding positivity and inspiration to um, yeah to improve some things in the in the life and I just think that's um, very impressive but yeah so going on from that very positive message um, I want to ask a bit about some, maybe um, yeah, some difficult stuff, maybe also for you to talk about, so you can just yeah um, share as much as you want or as much as, as you know. But um, so the, the situation with your father, um, has he talked about what happened to him um, into detail as well? After I asked, this question unfortunately the connection got a bit lost again but what she's talking about here is what her dad went through as he was in the Russian prisoner camp and yeah he was psychologically tortured he was staffed and he was beaten and he was also tortured in other ways so yeah it's a very tragic story what happened to Karina's dad but that is um, just what happens in these Russian prison camps and yeah so that is just what happens to anyone they decide to to take away and to take into one of these camps from the temporarily Russian occupied area and after she talked about that we um, yeah I I picked up the conversation uh, again and asked into um, what was happening in that area with her family, yeah, like besides her dad, so so that's where the conversation starts again. So, besides your um, your dad, um, yeah, the story of your dad, which is probably uh, the most difficult thing and the most, yeah, tra- uh, the biggest tragedy for your family. Then um, you said to me also uh, before this conversation that half of your family lives in occupied area in uh, Ukraine. How much do you know about um, the life of your family right now? Yeah, I know pretty much everything. I mean, uh, by half of my family, I meant my mom, um, my grandmother and uh, my granddad and my grandma, like um, basically the parents of my parents. Um, 
why they are still there it's not because like they support russia or that they like their life there no my mom is still there because of my grandparents and my grandparents are quite old and uh, they don't want to leave their houses they don't want to leave everything uh that they have because they're afraid of going even like to kiev where they don't have like a flat or a house or just like anything you know and you spend uh all your life working and living um to have a nice retirement period probably but uh, they didn't really get it uh, and they just don't want to leave and that's why uh, my mom is still there because uh, of course um, if she leaves there will be um, no one to help them in case something happens like with their health or just even like uh, they won't have anyone to talk to uh, especially like my granny because she leaves alone because my granddad and uh, my grandma like my dad's parents, they live together, they're a couple, but my um, uh, grandmother's husband died a lot of years ago, and so she's alone, uh, and we don't really want to leave her alone there, and she refuses uh, to go anywhere else, because she says that she won't make it, because it's super difficult. Another thing is like uh, how you get out of that territory, because if you uh, want to go... If you want to come to Kiev, if you want to come to any European country, um, it is possible to do that, but it's such a long process. Uh, it takes so much time because uh, um, at the border they question you and they search everything. They check your phone, they check uh, your laptop, uh, like they check everything uh, and it's super difficult to get out of that territory uh, if they find something that they don't like they won't let you go uh, and then another thing is to come back for example if you just went uh, for a visit uh, and it's a very long way because if you want to come to Kiev for example at first you have to go to Russia then you have to take like a train or a plane to uh, the country that has uh, a connection with Russia. I mean, an air connection, it can be like Armenia um, or something like that. I, I, I'm not quite sure about all the countries, being honest. Uh, or if you take a bus, uh, it will be even a longer way. And I know some people spend weeks at the borders and they, you know, like they sleep in like sleeping sacks, and uh, uh, they just uh, they suffer because it's uh, when it's hot, uh, it's horrible to do that, and if it's winter, it's super cold, and uh, you just wait outside. So the conditions are also awful. Mm -hmm. And I think it's great that you explain also why it uh, is that maybe not all people in these areas have fled to other parts of Ukraine or, or outside Ukraine. Um, as I understand it, and yeah, you can just comment shortly on this if you want to, um, a lot of Ukrainians have actually fled these areas to other parts of Ukraine and even it's, it's okay so i would like this is something that i would actually um 
like to just um, yeah state or conclude here but sometimes when um, there is a conflict happening uh, a war happening and you don't really follow it it is pretty difficult to then afterwards come and say what happened because yeah the facts are sometimes disguised a bit by the fog of war and what I'm going to say now is not related to the war that has been after the full-scale invasion but is related to yeah the war that was already started in 2014 yeah which is the war that uh, the full-scale uh, invasion is also a part of that was just uh, not just but there was a, a huge escalation of the war that was already taking place but as um, what I found out when I actually looked into this stuff, um, yeah, the war in the eastern part of Ukraine, is that a lot of Ukrainians in that area actually already fled before 2022 from what was um, either yeah, pro-Russian or Russian-occupied areas. To me, it's not that important if you say pro-Russian or just Russian. Um, I think it is kind of the same thing. So yeah, so so the areas that already before 2022 were controlled by um, Russian power, a lot of people actually fled from these areas. It, yeah, in the period from 2014 to 2022, all a lot of people fled from areas that they were suspicious of would get under Russian control. So it is just to say that um, yeah, the stream of people fleeing to the yeah to the west or to um, other parts of ukraine from russian controlled areas or from potentially russian controlled areas was already something that we saw before the full-scale invasion even happened and that just goes to show that what the people actually wanted in these areas was never to live under the russian flag or under a russian controlled state or or entity and i just think that sometimes we forget that it's pretty clear to most people that since 2022 february 2022 a lot of people have fled away from russia but people were actually already ukrainians were already doing that before the war so um yeah it's, it's a just um it is a premise that it is but it is this true also um the way that you have experienced that you have lived in the uh, area i guess also um in that period um so is it true that a lot of people were already fleeing um from that zone into ukraine uh, yeah how can you say it uh, secure ukraine ukrainian areas to get away from uh, the russian power sorry to cut in here what karina is talking about initially as she is about to yeah, explain herself is the family members of some of the families that fled to her city. So yeah, she's just talking about the family members and we'll just go straight into that. That was uh, like my dad's uh, sister, uh, cousins. Uh, so just like extended family, you know. Uh, they uh, All of them lived in Lugansk and uh, Lugansk was, uh, okay, it became a, a Russian territory or whatever it is like, a, uh, Lugansk People's Republic in 2014 and all of them left that territory so they fled and at first they lived uh, in our house like I remember the time when uh, there were 20 people in our house I think and uh, uh, we were living together it was just like the summer um, of 
2015, I think, uh, 2014. Don't really remember because uh, I was just 12 years old, 12, 11 years old. Uh, but all of them left, and uh, at first they moved to my city, my city, uh, my my town. My my town is called uh, Starobelsk, uh, and uh, like my cousins uh, started going to school at my city, uh, and then uh, two families moved to a bigger city, uh, also in Lugansk region, uh, that was Ukrainian territory, and they. Uh, kept living there up until uh, 2022. Uh, but one family moved back to Lugansk. Um, I think their decision was based um, maybe because they had like job there, because they had a house there, and they thought that they wouldn't be able to find another job, a better job uh, in Ukraine. Or I don't really know, you know. Um, yeah, and uh, I, but I think um, yeah, the, this point about people fleeing already before 2022 from Russian power uh, is pretty clear right now. Um, yeah, people can uh, decide if whether or not they believe what I'm saying, but I think this is also something that you can find on Wikipedia or basically any other media seriously covering what has actually happened throughout yeah that period and yeah what you were saying that five families fled to your town from Luhansk and but one family then moved back right yes mm, exactly but that doesn't uh, yeah disprove any anything um, that just goes to show what is also a very natural thing I think which is that when people come from an area and has created a life in that area They also um, yeah, have a connection to it. Maybe that job is only something they can, um, yeah, how can you say it, uh, do within that area. Or maybe there is other reasons. Family could also be a reason. Um, and and I think you talked about your family, just to get back to, um, yeah, to, to today, contemporary, um, the war after the full-scale invasion. And I just think it is pretty um, easy to understand The situation of your family for example so they stayed because they wanted to um, protect your yeah uh, grandparents um, who, which is very natural because yeah and this the situation of your grandparents is then are then that they actually don't feel it is safe enough for them to flee because um, there is all these obstacles that you have to get through and besides that they also still have a life even amidst all of the yeah, Russian suppression and so on, um, that they cannot just leave. So so I just think that um, it is important to say that um, it is very natural that there are still people in these areas and it has nothing to do with people being pro-Russian in these areas. And this is important because I think sometimes in yeah in the west in denmark and so on we tend to drive a narrative which isn't true about the fact that there should be some pro-russians in these areas and i think we do that because that is a narrative of convenience for us because this makes it how can you say it So we want to support Ukraine 100% of course and we're doing that and Denmark especially 
but I still think we are not doing it to the degree that we could do. But if we, yeah, if we were to do it in a, on a larger scale, providing even more weapons and so on, that would also, how can you say it? What, what is a prerequisite for that? It gets a bit academic now, the language, but yeah, <laughs> what, is a, what is a prerequisite for us to do that is also to understand ourselves that some of the narrative that we have been putting forward and that we have driven forward from 2014 up until today are just not true, especially the part about pro-Russians living in these areas because saying that pro-Russian people and a lot of them lives live in these areas is also something that takes away the responsibility we have to help Ukraine wholeheartedly because then you can say, oh, but maybe we shouldn't do it to such a degree because there is also maybe some pro-Russians in these areas. So a settlement or something like that could be a possibility, whatever. And I just think we have to get away from that narrative and yeah, what you're telling and the reasoning for your family to stay there is um, indicative of the fact that there are not that many pro-Russians in these areas and that the people who did stay not did it due to political reasons, but due to life reasons. And I also think that is a sort of an um, yeah interesting paradoxality, in, not just an interesting uh, paradox to make sure I'm saying uh, the words correctly, but it is just a paradox that a lot of people in the West, they... Um, I really don't want to um, say anything that might um, make it so that I'm saying something to um, how can you say yeah convict anyone of uh, not doing stuff because as Maria also said it is natural that we doesn't care as much as the Ukrainians do because it is further away from us and um, so I don't um, yeah I don't want to say that anyone should do anything but some of uh, yeah, the feeling I sometimes get when people subtract themselves from talking about the war in Ukraine is that they say, um, but our government is doing everything it can and it supports Ukraine. So for me, this is actually something that I don't feel it's necessary to uh, spend political capital on. So I just want to stay out of the discussion, which for me is the most apolitical thing you can do because then you just put it into the hands of other people whatever is and decided and for us to be apolitical in this way while imagining that people who are um, staying in ukraine is doing it due to political reasons um, it just doesn't really add up to me because maybe some of these people that have stayed are also um, I, okay, you can say what I, I, I really want you to hear your reaction to this. But I think maybe a lot of the people who stayed in these areas are just very apolitical people. Um, and, and yeah, so yeah, um, and, and, and it's just unfair for us to politicize the fact that they are staying as something they are doing um, as like a sign up support for, for Russia. Um, yeah, so yeah, what is your um, take on, on this? You, yeah, you made a bit of an expression when I said that they were maybe apolitical people. Yeah, so you must have something to say with regards to that. Uh, yeah, so I'm not going to lie. There are people, there are some people who do support Russia now. But those um, are the people who, 
who were never successful during like the time when we had uh, when we were part of Ukraine. What I mean by that, those are the people who normally don't have higher education. Those are the people who didn't have any high posts. So everyone who had good life, everyone who had education, who had a nice job, who had uh, just like a nice lifestyle, everyone left. Unless, I mean, like, for example, like my mom, uh, it's, it's a very common case. It's not just like my family. Because of all the people, some people have to stay. Like, uh, even some of my friends have the same situation. But, uh, for example, if I talk about my classmates, I don't know a single person staying there. Uh, so there are no young people who decided to stay there because there is no future there. Uh, if you go to uh, a university, that I, I don't even know whether universities there exist, but still, if you go like to college, let, it, let us say, uh, you won't be accepted uh, to any... Um, to any job or to anything with that uh, diploma or with that degree, like from uh, Lugansk People's Republic uh, College or from any other type of college there. Uh, so um, people who call them, I don't think it's possible to call anyone who lives uh, in Ukraine or uh, on that uh, territory uh which is also part of Ukraine and will be shortly, I'm sure, again. Uh, but um, it's, it's just impossible to call them apolitical because uh, they see everything and they realize everything. And I'm sure they have their own position. But maybe it's just uh, more convenient for them because when uh, the territory was occupied, they received a better position that they used to have because the competition is less, right? And so, for example, uh, people who worked, uh, I don't know, as cleaners became mayors of towns, you know? That's quite a nice uh, promotion, I think. So th that's like the only reason, I think, oh, why people stay there. Uh, all right. Um, so, yep. It's just a now we're talking a bit about reasons for staying there and yeah to me there is just a you say the having to support the elder people makes a lot of people from the yeah generation of our parents also to stay and then you yeah in the end there you talked a bit about Russian methods for gaining how can you say it the support of some of the the locals to me the the last thing I so as someone who also uh, studies political science and has been very active in politics for a large part of my life I think the fact that they are, they are making a cleaner for example to be a mayor of a city I, I don't think that anyone um, it is a bit difficult how to say how to say it but for regular people I think you cannot um how can you say it? Um it yeah it's it's difficult to um so sorry, sometimes my English words um slip a bit away. Suspect that's the word. I always get the word after 
I say sometimes the English word slips away. And then it then it just comes. I don't know if it's like uh, <laughs> it's a thing actually. It has happened a, uh, like four four conversations in a row now. Yeah. So I think it's a bit rough to um, suspect people, ordinary people, for having uh, thought that so much through before the Russians came there. I think that maybe what the Russians have been doing is maybe to put out some uh, feelers, so to say, um, by whatever means they can do that. But they, they can maybe get in contact to some groups or some people before enacting what they did in eastern Ukraine and what they did in Crimea. And then they can take account of whatever these people then say back to them. So if they get the sense, it back in 2014, at least they did this. They didn't do this going into 2022 full-scale invasion, obviously. Um, but it, back in 2014, I think what they realized were that A, the West wouldn't come to um, the aid of Ukraine in this situation, um, which is sad, I think, but was also true. And B, that there were people in Crimea and in some of the eastern parts of Ukraine that would willingly cooperate with them. So, yeah, so that was um, the the fundament of which they then enacted these um, operations back then. So, so I think it's more a case of Russia lifting up some people that maybe have political views that stray away from the ordinary uh, way of thinking and then they they actually use these people as puppets for imposing to the world uh, another situation than there um, than there actually is so yeah the last thing um it, to me it's more of a political thing than um, than it is about reasons for people to uh, yeah to stay in these areas but then obviously what you're also talking about is um is some of the this some of these things about people with um, that maybe doesn't have the best educations and possibilities in life that maybe they are more prone to let themselves be entangled with some pro-Russian yeah, way of thinking. And I don't think there is any excuses for doing that as a person. I think then the problem is within the persons that then do that but it is also um yeah psychologically proven that if you live in a society in which you don't think you um yeah get the things that you want to get and somebody else comes and say hey i actually want to destroy the society you are a part of and make it come under another power's control then you yeah then you um are more um how can you say it once again, I'm losing the uh, the English word here, um, and and I'm not getting it. But then you are more likely. Then you are more. It happened again. <laughs> then you are more likely to um, or more prone to support the yeah the outside force that is saying that they want to destroy the system that you feel is holding you down. So so I think psychologically that is also something that um, yeah that just happens. And unfortunately, the Russians. Actually, they actually now I'm realizing how this all works because this is the psychological theory behind this. But the Russians have known that for a long, long time. 
they have known that even back in the days of the USSR that this was how people worked so that was always how they yeah, um, imposed to the outside world that there were actually support for the things that they were enacting within their subjugated nations such as Ukraine, Belarus, Georgia all the all the states so so they they actually take advantage of the weak psychology of some people which is also um, just a very um here in a western thinking you know in a like in a how can you say it in a majority it's a bit abstract but in in the general way we think in the west that is something that is very um it's i would say evil actually to do to, um, to use people like that. But that is what the Russians are doing and have always been doing. And they're doing it now. They did it in 2014. They did it in Georgia in 2008. They're also doing it in Moldova, in the Transnistria region. And I think, and people can say whatever they want about this, but I think they are doing that to a lot of regions within Russia as well. So that is just part of Russian yeah, colonization. Um, but so yeah, so now we have talked a lot about um, yeah your family, your situation, why some people might stay, why that is not and that why that is not indicative of them being pro-Russian or anything. It just means that they also have life, have lives. They also live their lives in these areas, and that was um, their home, and that is their home. So so you cannot say in any way um, that this is some sort of political statement to stay and actually the people who are getting referred to whenever someone wants to make a point about someone being pro-Russian within Ukraine it is usually a person that has been lifted out of a situation that the person wasn't in before because the Russians came and used corruption to increase yeah, the position of that um, at least a lot of times and other times it is just um, yeah, uh, plain corruption with the Russians um, enacting agents where, wherever they, um, they can. So, so that's just an important point. Um, so yeah, I would love to talk more about this as well because I think it's important and interesting. Yeah, this last part about the, psych yeah, the psychological methods that the Russians are, are using, but I can see that we have already talked for an hour now, and I want to um, to hear um, a little bit about also your experience moving to Scotland and how you've found all that, and also how it has been for you to go through that process while also knowing that your dad was actually in Russian captivity. Like, how was it possible for you to still enact all these things and make all these changes happen and like landing in a good place so yeah can you just talk me through that yeah sure uh, yeah being honest i do remember my, uh, the thoughts in my head so when i was uh, on the plane to scotland uh, i was just thinking about the fact that i want my parents to be proud of me and that um, i should do everything that i can do in the circumstances that we got. Um, but uh, my experience of life in Scotland is just amazing because, uh, of course, it was safety, first of all. And uh, 
Um, secondly, it's uh, the hospitality of people uh, who uh, my friend and I were staying with. Uh, so we just followed a very um, simple scheme. It's called Homes for Ukraine. And uh, I think it was uh, the initiative of British government. Uh, basically, uh, those are the people who agreed to host us. And uh, we got very lucky uh, with the family we lived in because uh, they are the most kind uh, people I could have ever ever met. Um, we lived in Highlands, uh, quite far away from Edinburgh, where uh, I'm living now. Uh, and um, another point is that, uh, yeah, so they provided us uh, with a house. Uh, and uh, at first, we were just like living there and um, proceeded with our online studying in university. Uh, but uh, when the summer started, uh, we we decided that we had to work because, you know, uh, I mean, um, my dad was still in captivity. And before that, uh, I didn't really work because I, I just studied. Um, and we started working in a restaurant as waitresses. And uh, it was a fun experience. Can't say that I would like to do that again, but uh, I'm super grateful that I had it. And uh, uh, at first it was difficult, um, but then I got used to it and I earned some money because, um, you know, I, I couldn't uh, be sure that my dad would be released and that everything would be okay. So uh, that's why we started working. Um, and after that, like um, in August, I think uh, I stopped working and uh, started thinking about entering the university in uh, Scotland and started preparing for that. Um, so that was my experience of life there. Um, you know, before that, I had an experience of living um, in the US. And uh, so at least I had an idea of what to expect and how was your uh, yeah sorry how was your english when you got to scotland uh, uh i think my level of english was quite high uh, as i've already said that before that i uh, had lived in the us like uh, as an exchange student when i was 16 15 uh, so uh, i had a certain level of english but uh, th being honest that's a huge problem because for example even if you wa uh, want to work as a waitress, you have to have um, a high level of English because otherwise you won't be able to communicate because, you know, like the clients who come, they have uh, various accents and uh, they, they are not speaking slowly. They're not adjusting to the speed that you speak with, you know. Uh, so I think you have to have quite a high level of English. And um, that's why a lot of Ukrainians find it quite difficult to find a job for them if they don't have um, any English uh, knowledge. Uh, you can work, uh, uh, for example, um, my friend was with her mom and her mom uh, worked in the kitchen like she was washing the dishes and that was the only job she could get because uh, she didn't speak English. But uh, as we did speak English, uh, we had an opportunity to work with clients. And that, that was nice. And uh, uh, of course, 
it helped me a lot with uh, English. I mean, um, my job as a waitress uh, helped me a lot because uh, every day I was meeting uh, different people with different accents with uh, uh, from different countries and uh, I, I was just like listening and talking talking and talking and uh, uh, I, I do believe that my English improved since that time also mm -hmm. and you were talking about uh, just before this question that you then in August started, uh, started thinking about going to the university um, can I just uh, yeah some quick questions here so You get to Ukraine in, no, sorry, you get to Scotland in May 2022, right? And then, yeah, they, then obviously you have to get everything solved um, with the initial, I don't want to say integration process, but that is what it is, I guess. Um, so, yeah, so you, you get the house outside Edinburgh and then, yeah, you just take the job. But and then after the the job, were you then in a situation where all your papers were fixed and you were because if you go to Denmark, a lot of Ukrainians did that as well. But you have to have your papers straight before you can start applying for a university, for example. And I think actually even before you can take a job so so how, how was that whole process of like um getting a bank account and getting all your papers fixed and yeah all these sort of administrative struggles you can just call them whatever you want but all these sort of things that you had to um yeah get together how was that all worked out yeah so uh, you know i have a friend uh, uh not even a friend, a student who had an experience uh, of red tape in Denmark. And as far as I know, it's uh, a little bit more difficult than it is in the UK because uh, uh, in Scotland it was super straightforward. And uh, uh, I don't remember any uh, struggles at all. Like uh, all the process was uh, facilitated for us. And I remember there was... Uh, Uh, maybe like a coordinator, I don't know the exact uh, position she has, but I remember a woman coming to us and uh, she was telling us like all the steps we have to do. Um, and the bank account, it was uh, a super easy task uh, to do. It didn't take a lot of time. I remember we just used uh, like an app, uh, Revolut or something like that. So, so it was super easy. And um, in terms of university, also, uh, I'm super grateful for this country because uh, I think they did their best. Uh, it's not difficult. Uh, they'll tell you everything you need. And even if you don't have some papers, it was okay because, you know, like, um, I was lucky because I had my uh, documents with me, right? But, for example, some people... Uh, could have had a fire in their house or something and they didn't have, uh, uh, for example, like a diploma or uh, university grades if they wanted to continue their studies. And it wasn't a problem at all and they helped with everything. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I'm not quite sure how it works uh, uh, when you go like to, oh, I even forgot how it's called, like a job office uh, Uh, there is a certain name for that. Uh, 
where they help you to find the job, you know. Uh, we didn't go there because we worked uh, at the people's, uh, like at the restaurant of uh, the family we, we were staying with. Uh, so for us, it was a little bit easier to do and they helped uh, with everything. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, I know that everything is very straightforward and um, thank you for all the countries that are helping us as much as possible. Mm. And yeah, just to just one last question about this. So, yeah, so I, as someone who is very interested in politics and in so, so there is this concept. It's called a citizenship, which uh, means to be yeah a citizen of the country that you're staying in. Uh, and I, I, I think you don't have a British passport, right? I do. Yeah, so you're not a British citizen you maybe you can become in, in the you also said you wanted to go home and stuff yeah but that is something that is pretty uh, at least takes a, a lot of time to be in a position to obtain and that's the same in Denmark but what was your status then as a as a citizen like when you applied do you just have like an um yeah you're just cleared to um yeah to work and to to apply for studies in Britain basically uh yeah Yeah, but that makes sense. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, yeah, to yeah, to know um, what the situation is. Um, and now you're studying international relations or business. Business. International business. All right. And how has that been studying at the British University? Uh, yeah. So the first question about the status that, for example, I have and all Ukrainians that come to Britain uh, have. Um, so. Um, Before going there, you have to um, fill an online application. Uh, again, super straightforward. All the steps are written in Ukrainian, I think, and uh, everything is super cool. And they give you, like, um, if everything is okay and uh, if you're eligible for, for it, uh, they give you a residential permit, uh, which allows you to work and to, to study Um, in the UK for three years. So that's what you get when you come. Okay, so... I... Okay, sorry, right now you're cleared to work and study in UK for three years. Yeah. Oh, all right, all right, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so um, I, I don't think we will have time to talk about your your studies, uh, unfortunately, um, but we could do that maybe sometime in the future. Um, but I want to get on to... One last thing, but yeah, I want to get on to your teachings, your job um, at the tutor uh, firm. But I also want to um, yeah, comment a bit about all the things you're saying about this being so straightforward for the Ukrainians and all the help you received. And this is because in the UK, I think, but I know for a fact that in Denmark, there is a lot of people talking about that it is a bit unfair that we give the ukrainians like other uh other i wouldn't say i don't want to say anything wrong here but but the ukrainians have other rights compared to other refugees and privilege, so, privilege yeah they, they have some privilege compared to other refugees and you can I, I think that is um, all right. And I think 
yeah, you, you can obviously always discuss if whether or not other refugees should, should have the same as the Ukrainians. But yeah, to me, there is some things in it. First of all, I think Ukraine is a country that we in the Western Hemisphere, especially in Europe, within the EU countries, have a larger responsibility for because the Ukrainians are so close to us and therefore it is a country which we have way more uh, possibilities to also help basically um, based upon their geographical location so 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 in that way I think there is a um, reason for it there which is that um, yeah I think Actually, we are partly to blame also for the fact that Russia invaded and um, embarked on this full-scale invasion last year because of the things that um, we could have done, which we did not do to deter Russia. So I think, yeah, that is uh, an argument for this. And then I also think that another very important argument is an argument that is shining through in the story that you're telling me and in the stories that Olena and what's her name? Uh, Yevgenia, who lives in Germany, are telling me. And that is that whenever the Ukraine whenever Ukrainians come somewhere, usually they really want to work and they really want to integrate themselves within the society. And they are also yeah, from the start um they have a big gratitude towards the country and the nation and the people that they are, are coming to. And you can also see that within statistics, especially in Denmark, Ukrainians are the group of refugees as, an, as, a, yeah, as a nation that uh, have the biggest work, working percentage. And that is um, even though a lot of Ukrainians have come more recently than other immigrants, uh, or refugees and this is in no way to um, to say that um, other refugees they are also uh, humans just like everyone else and I, I want the best for them but but the problem is that we have other experiences with people coming from some of um, some other countries and some other parts of the world which have um, taught and learned us I think that some people are more easily integrated within our society and that is also partly down to the culture of the people that are, are coming so it is not to say anything bad about anyone but it is just to say that there is actually a difference between yeah the way how can you say it? there is i think there is an attitude difference when you compare uh, refugees from different parts of the world coming to the West, where I sometimes think that yeah, some, some people, um, they don't uh, share the gratitude of the Ukrainians towards the societies that they are coming to. Um, so I think that's uh, one reason for it to, for the rules that we have for Ukrainians. And then I think there is the yeah, security reason for us that, um, we have these rule for, rules for Ukrainians. And then I think thirdly, which I actually forgot before, but it's the most important to me, is that um, the Ukrainians are right now fighting for democracy, for freedom, for human rights, 
for the individual agency of people and that is all things that are very much core values to the western world and which is the world that they are coming to so so in that way that also i think at least um put upon us uh, puts upon us a moral responsibility also to um to do our best to do to make it as easy as possible for the ukrainians to um, to come here um yeah so so that's just um to to talk a bit about this debate there has um there has been um how do you feel it as a as a, do you have you um how can you say it? do you see this debate as well uh, and has and has anyone ever mentioned anything uh, along these lines to you No, uh, I, I've never uh, experienced uh, any like comments uh, about me being a Ukrainian and having some privilege. Uh, but uh, I heard other people uh, talking about that, or maybe I saw it online. Uh, but um, I mean, uh, there is, there are obvious reasons for that, and uh, I do hope that. Uh, all the Ukrainians realize uh, all the responsibility that we have for receiving uh, such benefits that all the countries are providing to us. Um, and uh, and I do hope, you know, like uh, a lot of people uh, don't understand that um, we don't want, we, we don't really want like to move to another country and we don't want to... Um, Uh, for example, like to get any benefits from them. Uh, those are just the circumstances that we are in. And uh, once the war is over, uh, I'm sure a lot of people will come back uh, and will just try to work as hard as possible to uh, somehow uh, give everything back, you know, to all the countries and uh, economy. Huh? Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. That is also a fourth point that I could have um, included. That yeah, we have a pretty strong expectation about the Ukrainians wanting to go home when the war is over, and that is also the message that I've received from almost every Ukrainian that I've spoken to who have fled temporarily due to the war, and that is actually not the case with a lot of other refugee groups uh i guess almost every other refugee group that has been um yeah in large numbers coming to denmark for example but but i it well the reason why i actually didn't want to um include that one is that um contrary to some uh other groups of refugees i actually don't think there is any um, risk of Ukrainians in any way um, being a group of refugees that um, could represent um, maybe a burden to the um, to the society so so I think that's why I didn't mention it on like an ideological uh, level but it is of course a very important point as well to say that yes a lot of Ukrainians are here right now but these are not the type of refugees that we have been receiving for Yeah, the last 30 years, these are actually refugees that um, very much want to go home again. And that is that is obviously due to what I was talking about Ukraine are fighting for, because 
than what they want to go home to. Like what you want to go home to is a society that is uh, democratic, that is um, where the free word rules and where uh, yeah, human rights are respected. So, so that just makes so much sense as well. Uh, yeah, so here this uh, will be the last subject uh, that we will go on to now. Sorry to cut in here again, but the connection got a bit lost here as we are heading towards the end. But as I was saying, we were now moving on to talking about one of the last subjects. And that subject was the job that Karina is doing, her work as an tutor at the English school Let's Speak, which is the school that Maria Publik, whom I talked with last last week, is yeah the founder of and um, is driving today. So we talk about that and that kind of leads to me asking a, a question about how that has inspired Karina to start think to start thinking about the plans she have when um, she come back, comes back home to Ukraine, her plans for how she wants to help improve the Ukrainian educational system. Yeah, so that is um, one of the very, very last things we speak about. So yeah, that's uh, where we pick up. Can you just explain why you are thinking uh, like that and what drove you to, um, yeah, to, to make that plan? Yeah, sure. Uh, definitely British University was that push uh for me to think about changes in our educational system because you know um unfortunately it has a lot to do with ussr system and uh, the approach of a lot of uh, professors of a lot of teachers that we have in university is very outdated uh, and uh, uh, british education showed me how it could be and uh, You know, uh, what I noticed in Britain is that, uh, like, the libraries there are full. Uh, I have never seen and I have never heard um, any of my group mates who would go to a library in Ukraine because they're just not motivated because uh, it's only about, like, um, some pressure of deadlines and we have so many subjects. So uh, I would really love to see some improvements and uh, I would like to initiate a lot of improvements in that sphere. And of course, uh, I don't think uh, um, I would have this idea um, had it not been for the war. Mm. Oh, sorry. Uh, and um, yeah, so, so when you talk about that, uh, the library is not being full in Ukraine, but being in but that they are full in UK. So so what you want to improve is actually also the educational infrastructure within Ukraine. Is that uh, correctly understood? So you want to make the libraries more appealing and maybe maybe other stuff as well. Do you want to uh, do, do you want to be like a politician or someone who works in the yeah, just in the ministry? Uh, what is um yeah Yeah, can you tell me a bit more about your plans? Because I think they're, okay. they're interesting, yeah. Uh, it's not only about infrastructure. It's not only about like um, the way the libraries looks or the way university looks. It, it's about the desire that uh, students have. Because uh, here um, you don't have a lot of motivation because uh, you just care about the grades, you know. And uh, 
for example, you have too much to comprehend. And uh, for example, in Britain, I have three subjects per semester. Here, I have like ten or even more, you know. And I don't have uh, deep knowledge in any of them. And it's not that I'm not studying. I think I'm quite a diligent student. It's just like that it's impossible to comprehend everything. Uh, so I would love to change this approach. And uh, yeah, I would just love uh, the students in Ukraine uh, to have that motivation and to see uh, that um, if they go to like uh, public sector or if they uh, study to be a teacher or a doctor, uh, they, they will receive um, an appropriate treatment, uh, an appropriate salary, because, you know, like, uh, that um, a lot of people will respect them, because now uh, people think that uh, there is no future if you just study in a university and don't work for a business or for a foreign company. So I want uh, the students to be sure that... Uh, um, it's worth studying and that uh, they can expect a bright future uh, and for that they don't really have to go to Cambridge or Oxford. It's possible to do that even like in Ukrainian university. Mm, I think that's uh, some very good thoughts you're having about um, yeah, how you want to change the Ukrainian educational system. and. Yeah, so I actually think that now it's getting a bit um, educational politic-wise as well. But at least I think that what we um, that we, what we got right in Britain and in Denmark and in some of the other Nordic countries and also in the United States is that the academic educations that we have are actually um, pretty directed towards getting a job after the, the education as well so that um, yeah if you like me study political science I can be pretty assured about there being a job possibility for me within that subject and likewise if you study e economics or law or something like that you are pretty set and I think that just goes for almost every education in Denmark whereas you're saying that right now in Ukraine the system is a bit too how can you say it like um, spread out so that so that you just have a lot of different subjects and that it is maybe a bit difficult to see how that um, yeah yeah how all the different things that you have learned should um, yeah come together as a sort of um, yeah um, like a unified education I guess or something like that um, so so I think that's a very um, that's a very very good ambition and do you know how you want to start when you uh, when you get back I do know uh, yeah. Um... I do have some ideas and uh, um, fingers crossed <laughs> they will come true. Yeah, I cross my fingers as well. Uh, but of course, um, yeah, so now I think we will um, yeah, go to the uh, end here, um, which will, uh, will be me promoting a value that I think stands out from the conversation. And then you can uh, yeah, do, the, do that yourself as well or uh, just comment on what I'm saying. Um, there was just one point I wanted to make here in the end. No, that doesn't matter. Um, so I'll just go straight to the yep, value promotion because that's something I do in every conversation. And I just found this saying that I've been thinking about a lot um, in, the, yeah, in the last period, um, which is that uh, the devil lies in the detail. 
and I think that's a, a, a thing that I want to talk about here in the in the end because I think that is what you see uh, or that or that is what you hear th- through the conversation about the direction in which the Ukrainians fled from 2014 until 2022 because for me um, it was a bit disguised in that period what was actually happening and I think a lot of that were down to false western kind of pro-Russian narratives that we were spreading and repeating in our media first of all about um, it did The backbone for this is the Crimean narrative, which has for a long time now been that um, most people in Crimea were pro-Russian and the the referendum and all that, um, which was just a scam referendum. But that also carried into our thinking of what was happening in eastern Ukraine. So we would um, talk about the, the fact that um, that was maybe like a pro-Russian area or something and that was just never the case and we see that when we look at what were actually happening I think in Donetsk in 2014 before Russia yeah, uh, did what they did to um, start the war there and to um, support these um, yeah, local um, separatists that weren't that many but were very uh, prepared for violence and and I saw a picture which a Ukrainian another Ukrainian girl named Daria who is in Denmark showed me where 5,000 people were actually on the street in Donetsk demonstrating for the same things that they were demonstrating for in Kiev um, as a part of the Maidan revolution so they were uh, yeah, supporting Ukraine like uh, most people in that area would do so that is a detail which you have to dig very deep to find but when you then find it, you see what is actually the truth. Um, And then I think also, yeah, the fact that so many Ukrainians were fleeing away from Russian power in that period is also just another thing that is very suggestive towards the fact that these people never wanted Russia to come there and they never wanted any separatist movement to start and to um, start waging war in that territory. So it was always just violent forces that were threatening the peace and stability of the local population in that area that um, yeah, that, that were the, um, yeah, the wrong side of that equation. And that was always something that was inflicted upon the Ukrainians living in that area by Russia. And the Ukrainians were never supporting that. And we see that first by the people demonstrating for Ukraine before all this happened and then we see it afterwards when looking at which direction people actually are fleeing to after the war is initiated. Nobody wanted to go to Russia, everybody wanted to go to safer parts of Ukraine or just the deeper uh, into the West. So so yeah, that's why I'm yeah, pulling out this phrase which is that the devil lies within the detail because the, these are pretty uh, difficult details to um, yeah, to uh, subtract as information but if you look at it you can really see what is actually going on um, yeah, regarding how many are pro-Ukrainian and how many are pro-Russian in these areas you just see that by people fleeing and I think that is also and this has been talked about more but you also see that with all the Russians fleeing from 
Russian mobilization, which is the detail that proves to me that this is not a war that the Russians in their majority actually have any large... Well, I, sorry, I don't want to finish that point because I know uh, yeah, that, that also leads to situations. But the point is just that the fact that so many Russians are fleeing is showing to me that so many Russians actually don't buy this or go fight for your country and so on. They are not they are no way near as willing as the Ukrainians are to sacrifice themselves themselves for their country in this war. Yeah, it got a bit long, um, but yeah, uh, I would love to hear if uh, you have anything like a value you want to promote or something that stands out for you or just something that you want to say, or um, it doesn't have to be a comment on what I said, because I think that um, it, maybe it is a bit difficult to comment on. But yeah, this is the last chance to say anything here in the conversation. I'm sorry to cut in here, but unfortunately the connection was also lost in the end. But what Karina talks about is the fact that Ukraine have always fought for freedom, that they will never surrender and that the Ukrainians do not want Russia. Then she says we would never, we should never surrender and that that will be her value. Never surrender and keep fighting for and with Ukraine. So that will be the last words of this conversation although i also have to once again thank karina and also the producer frederick wagner hey